We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Feel like Kobe in a fourth quarter. This is the Dane Moore NBA podcast, and it's just me on this episode. Kinda, kinda just me on this episode. With how we're doing media these days, all being over Zoom, I do have some audio from questions I asked Josh Kogi, Gerson Rosas, and Ryan Saunders this week, and also um, a few questions for Trey Jones that Trey answered for me at the NBA's the NBA Combine's media availability that's going on right now. Um, so I'll weave those in here throughout the episode, but you'll see that those interviews in one way or another are all going to tie to Josh Okogie and Jared Culver, because that's who I want to focus on for this episode. Um, and I, I wanted to focus on Okogie and Culver because I found myself watching these playoff series in the bubble and, and looking, looking at these teams and really being interested in who the players are around the stars on each team. You know, whether that's Jeremy Grant and Gary Harris for the Nuggets or, say, Marcus Smart and Daniel Tice from the Celtics, I just kept thinking about how important it is for those fourth and fifth starters, whatever you want to call them, to mesh with their team's stars. And I think that's an open question for the Wolves, not only who those um, who those players are, um, but how, what it takes to mesh with D'Angelo Russell and and Carl Anthony Towns. So, really, it was it was the the Lakers and how they've been calling their non LeBron and AD guys the other guys. And I just was just kind of taking some notes during the game and thinking I was like, who who the hell are the Timberwolves' other guys? And I, I think actually digging into it, spending some time thinking about it, that I've just been hesitant to come to grips with the fact that as of now, at least. For the Wolves, those guys, those other guys, are Okogi and Culver. They are the two first-round picks from the last two drafts, and they're both under contract as long as anyone not named Towns or Russell on this Wolves roster. So um, I'll get into this a little bit more later because I asked Rosas and Saunders about it specifically, but Okogi and Culver didn't play together after the trade deadline this season. They both played in all 14 of those post-deadline games, yet they only shared the floor for... 17 total minutes in those 14 games. I mean, there's there's really no way of getting around it. Those guys were they were staggered. I mean, literally they that was because they were the the team's worst two-man pairing uh, before the deadline. They got outscored by 8.8 per points per possession per 100 possessions in the 417 minutes that Akogi and Culver shared the floor. And you know, it is a it is a problem to come to the conclusion that your two first round picks can't share the floor together. But I think we might have jumped the gun there a little bit. 
maybe they couldn't share the floor together last year or things just need to be adjusted in a way that allows them to. I mean, obviously the elephant in the room here is the shooting. They're, you know, Okogie and Culver shared an ability to competently shoot the ball pretty much prevented them from being able to play together last year. And obviously one workaround here is that it's problem solved if they both become good shooters. But I think if you're Rosa's and you're just sitting around, you can't just sit around and bank on that. So you got to ask yourself, are there workarounds? What, what are, what could the workarounds be? And for this episode, um, I dug through some stats, went through some film on those players looking for what I think the workarounds might be. And really the, the answer I, I did come to is yes, that I, I think that, that Jarrett Culver and Josh Okogie can share the floor, um, whether it's through you know managing rotations by adding specific types of talent around them. Yeah, I just do think there's there are ways to make it work. So I'm going to kind of walk through what I'm seeing there for fixes and also what I'm hearing from them. I asked, like I said, I asked Rosas and Saunders about the pairing and they describe how they you know, plan to make it work. So I'm going to go through each player one at a time um, before kind of talking about them in tandem. And um, I, I, yeah, I want to start with Josh Okogie and then we'll get to Jarrett Culver. Okogie, I think his fit next to Towns is one that we embrace a little bit more. And uh, Towns and Russell, and that's of course about the defense. I mean, we it's pretty well established that Josh Okogie is a solid defensive partner for them. But it's about making the offense given Akogi's lack of shooting, work. Um, I'm not going to play this audio quote, but but Akogi did, um, when, on that interview, he did say at bubble camp that he acknowledges that his, his shooting is a problem. He said, quote, obviously I have some work to do with my shooting, and I think that I've made great strides this summer, but from everything, from shooting to decision-making to dribbling to finishing, everything has to be better for me. I've had all the time in the world to work. I do kind of want to pull this apart thread by thread to get to the parts of a Kogi's offensive game that aren't explicitly about shooting, but we, we do have to start with the shooting that that's, that's the crux of this issue here. And it's because Josh, um, he shot 26.6% on 128 catch and shoot threes last season, according to second spectrum, according to second spectrum, there was 209 players that shot 100 or more catch and shoot threes. A Kogi's 26.6% ranked 209th last in the league. He also took 26 on the move threes and ironically also made 26.6% of those. So 26.6% catch and shoot, 26.6% on the move means 26.6% overall. And yeah, that's just, that's terrible. Um, but I do actually think it makes a lot of sense to me, kind of talked about this before, that there is no difference um, for a Kogi and catch and shoot versus pull up, you know, versus pull up threes. Because you've heard me say this. I believe the problem with Akogi's shot is inconsistent lower body mechanics. I think his stroke is is fine. And to that end, it, it makes sense that not, you know, that he wouldn't be seeing an advantage in those static catch and shoot situations. So I think that's step one of acknowledging that there's room for the shot to improve. He could improve mechanically, and at a minimum, I think that would boost at least his catch and shoot three point percentage over thirty percent. But it is incomplete to just focus on Josh's three-point shooting numbers because it's it's only part of his game. It's not an area that improved year one to year two. But from year one to year two, other things, he did start having a positive impact on the floor. And in terms of points per shot attempt, which obviously does include those threes, but also includes what he did within the arc, Kogi ranked in the 46th percentile amongst wings in the NBA. That's average overall efficiency while arguably being the worst three-point shooter in the NBA. I mean, that... There's actually something kind of impressive about that. Okogi, he did like balance the scales a bit by taking, he took half of his shots at the rim and he made those at a 62% clip. Three-point shots only made up one-third of his shot mix. Half of Okogi's shots came at the rim and then the remaining 17%, they were from the mid-range. And obviously, mid-range shots are inherently a quote-unquote bad shot unless you're Kevin Durant or whatever. But there there are different there is a difference in better versus terrible mid-range shots and what Josh did is he took almost all of his his mid-range shots he took were in that short mid-range area that 5 to 14 foot range now he only made 28% of those again bad but that number would have been even worse if he were to be taking deep mid-range shots 
which is really just a long way of me saying Okogie's shot mix is pretty solid or became pretty solid in the second year. And I think that's, that's a win. But the real boost in terms of efficiency came um, from his ability to get to the line. Okogie got to the free throw line on 18% of his shot attempts. That's huge. That's, that's 96 percentile most wings when it comes to getting to the line. And because Josh can shoot free throws, he's an 80% free throw shooter, that, that drove efficiency for him. Additionally, and I think this is important to note because it doesn't pop in the stats, is, is I, I think we saw growth from, from Josh as a penetrate and passer. He's being able to drive and finish or you know, get to the line. That's, that's part of the equation um, when it comes to penetration. But the other is being a distributor, and, and a Kogi really grew there. And I think that's something I maybe forgot a little bit because we tend to you know, give players general labels. And I think you know, Josh just plays with so much energy, that whole nonstop. It seems like he's out of control. But he really did begin to at least sometimes slow down enough to make – the necessary drop off, drop off passes. I think you can kind of picture that, right? Like, so Kogi catches on the wing, drives rather than shooting, and from there on the drive, drops it off to Cat if the big comes over to help, or he hits a slashing wancho, something like that. I asked Kogi about that skill set and and how it can continue to be developed, because you know, quite frankly, if he if he doesn't take continue to take strides as a shooter then he, this needs to develop even more or he, or there just kind of becomes um, a bit of a hard ceiling on, on what Josh can be offensively. So, but I, I really, I wanted to share this, this answer because I thought his answer was not only encouraging, but really to me illustrates how, how Kogi is developing as a basketball thinker. So here's Josh. Hey Josh, I have a basketball related question for you and just kind of thinking as you're answering John's question about things you added, seemed to add to your game last year. And I feel like one thing was being able to kind of penetrate from the perimeter and be able to drop off, whether it's a cat or, or kick or whoever. And I'm curious if that's a, a skill that you feel like you can work on individually or if that, that is something you do kind of need to be in a game sense, you know, to, to be doing. And, and I guess is that a struggle to not have been able to do maybe some work on some of those areas? Not really. I feel like uh... – when, when it comes to penetrating and kicking, you got to understand how – think about offense when you you have to learn how the defense works. And to learn defense, you have to learn how the offense works. So there's a lot of film work that goes into into that particular skill set. You got to know how the defense is rotating. So if, you know, some teams rotate off the big – so if they rotate off the big, cat's going to be open. If they rotate off the big and then the corner guy cracks back, then the corner's going to be open. They rotate off the big, the corner guy cracks back, and then the wing fills the corner, and then the wing's going to be open. So it's just watching film, understanding what the defense is doing. So when I'm driving, I'm not driving and then just trying to make a decision based off instinct. It's driving and seeing the rotations, and then based on the defense rotation, then making the decision. After Josh gave that answer, I, I, I went back to look at some of those scenarios he was describing, and I, I actually I grabbed a couple of those clips and I tweeted them out earlier this week. So if you want a visual, go back to go to Dane Moore NBA on Twitter and and you can find those there. Um, but when I was going through Okogi's offensive possessions, it, it was it was clear to me that one it got better, but two that it was clear that he was being positioned on the floor after the deadline differently. With Cat out, you know, I mean, you remember those games? The offense almost exclusively became five out on the perimeter. No one was in the post. You know, you know, Nas is on the perimeter, James Johnson, he's the center, whatever. It was, it was five out. And, and for Okogi specifically, this led to a shift of him to start possessions in the corner versus above the break on the wing. And that was advantageous for Okogi for two reasons, because now he's lined up as a corner three-point shooter, right? Um, Okogi only made 24% of his above the break threes last year. And in the corner, it was not great, but he made 33% of those. You know, finally a three-point number that's better than 26.6%. But the other part, point two, I, I think is is sneaky, maybe even more valuable with for Okogi when he starts in the corner, and that's that he now has a running start when he comes up onto the wing, when he, when he raises up there. This now allows him to catch on the move with his defender behind him or on his hip. And from there, Okogi's fast, and he has to step on his defender, and he can – he can get immediately into that penetrate and kick process without needing to make a move. He's just catching it. He's already on the move, beginning the penetrate and kick. And 
and that and that's that's meaningful for him. So I I really like that positioning. And then and I didn't really remember this either, but but he was he was also used as a, as a screener from the corner, and and there were these actions where Russell would dribble over, you know, to to Josh's side, the weak side, and and run a side pick and roll with a Kogi. And, and those actions were, you know, kind of frisky. And it's just, it makes a lot of sense. Sometimes the way, you know, to delete the negatives of a, of a non-shooter, you know, historically are to use that player as a screener. And that's what a Saunders started having a Kogi do, right? It's what we've seen done with bigs forever. If they can't shoot, you know, work them in as a screener and create an advantage in a different way, which... Which, you know, kind of putting that together, I guess, leads me to, I don't know what to, a, a spicy take, whatever you want to call it, is I, I, I just think Josh Okogie should be used as a big next year. A small ball, small ball big, of course, but, you know, in that quote-unquote power forward role on this team. If they're going to play small anyways, I don't really see the comparative downside to having Okogie be the small ball power forward if it's already going to be someone small no matter what. So hear me out. Maybe that sounds crazy. I know Josh is six foot four, but it's 2020. Cat's going to be back next year, right? So while they can play five out with Cat on the perimeter, they're also going to use Cat in the post because he's good in the post. When Cat is in the post, the offense becomes four out. And that shifts a Kogi back to the wing if he is playing the wing. Back into that above break, above the break role, a role that I think we know he's not very good at. You know, the, the lazy comp to make here for, for having him be a small ball big is, is PJ Tucker. It, it's, you know, but it's a, it's a less dramatic version of that. Kogi would just be the four and the cat would still be out there at center, but offensively it looks kind of similar. A Kogi's in the corner, except instead of using him just as a straight catch and shoot guy like Tucker, you can use him in that same sort of penetrator role that we were talking about that screener from the corner sort of thing, rather than just being the catch and shoot guy. And defensively, I, I think it would be like Tucker, too. We'd see that defensive shift up with a Kogi maybe checking the opposing power forwards. Yes, he's only 6'4", but he has that 7-foot wingspan. He, he's also thick, scrappy, and strong like Tucker. I mean, we're seeing this in the NBA Finals, right? Like, Jay Crowder is Miami's starting power forward. Now, that it's not working. He's guarding Anthony Davis. It's not working, but... I think we know that's more about Anthony Davis than anything. We know that Crowder can play power forward against power forwards not named Anthony Davis. I mean, that literally that's what got Miami to the finals is by starting Jay Crowder, a guy who's pretty similar in size to Josh Okogie. I, I didn't ask Gerson Rosas about Okogie playing the four specifically, but I did ask I did ask Gerson about what Okogie can do to be one of the team's core pieces, even if the shot doesn't dramatically improve. You know, those were just my ideas. And so I was interested to hear what he had to say. And I I don't know, maybe it's just me hearing what I want to hear, but I think there's an implication in Rosa's answers that, that a Kogi could be used in a different role going forward. So I'll play it for you. (laughs) You could be the judge of what you think. Uh, Gerson, uh, Josh was talking yesterday and, and he noted that as we all know, the, the shooting is something he needs to work on, but <clears throat> I think we're able to like compartmentalize some of that stuff. What it, What is an area in his game that you would like to see him outside of the shooting develop um, that would really, you know, establish, I don't want to say starter, but establish him into being kind of one of your, your team's main rotation pieces. What, what could he do to get to that level? You know, he's, he's such a talented defender, but he is young in the league. And as you all know, you have to be respected in the league to really impact on the defensive end. So a lot of it has been consistency with him. I think he's got natural instincts and physical tools that make him a good defender. We want him to be a great defender. And that's something that we need. That's something that's important for us. But offensively, I, I think the more time that he spent in our system, the more comfortable he's getting in terms of reads. And yeah, he needs to improve his shooting like Jared, like all our guys. Uh, we need to become a better shooting team. But his ability to handle the ball and make the right decisions in those situations are improving. Uh, and, and we need that to continue. Uh, because as we continue to build this team and, and, and add more talent to it, what he does is incredibly important. And he'll improve as a shooter. But making decisions on the offensive end, running the floor, uh, playing in, in more of an open court style, making better decisions and being more more effective and more efficient is important for us. So 
you know, it's, it's a long way to answer your question, but more consistency and just the better fit systematically uh, will help him on both ends of the ball and it will help us incredibly. Just a, a quick follow-up on that. And then, because you brought up Jarrett, um, those two basically stopped playing together um, after the deadline. Are those the things that Josh would need to improve to, or to get those? I'm assuming that you guys would like to be able to be in a situation where Jared and Josh could be on the floor together. Is it as simple as just they need to shoot better? Uh, that's part of that, but I don't think that's it. I think a lot of it is, you know, who's on the floor with them uh, and the ability to put uh, a playmaker with them, I think, simplifies their game uh, in a lot of levels, even though we feel like, you know, Jared has the potential to develop into a secondary ball handler and can play pick and roll. So, uh, you know, who's who's playing point with those guys? But the one thing that excites me about those two, and, and we've been able to experiment with some of it here, is their ability defensively together uh, to defend the perimeter and defend the wings and switch. Uh, J.O., uh, with his physicality and his strength, really gives us some creativity there defensively. And Jared's got good feel and good skill on the defensive end as well. So they're two young guys that value that end a little bit more than most typical young guys. So I see opportunities for them to play together. Uh, it's just, you know, who's playing the one with them and, uh, you know, who's filling the, those other two spots. But uh, I think that's something we like to get to, especially as we try to play faster and more, more effective on both ends. All right, I'll use that answer from Rosas as a reason to jump from a Kogi to Jarrett Culver as the other one of the Wolves' other guys, whatever whatever we're calling them. Again, Culver, like a Kogi, is one of he's one of the young players on this roster that the Wolves are really committed to. I mean, a Kogi has two more years before restricted free agency. Culver has three more years before his restricted free agency. And, you know, to that end, it would make sense that Rosas and this franchise are not only committed to developing those two as much as possible individually, but getting them on the floor together as much as possible, something they weren't doing last year. And as, as you heard in my question, the fly in the ointment there is that they, they weren't playing together after the trade deadline last year. And, you know, like I said earlier, that was because in those, those minutes before the deadline, um, they were, they were awful. The wolves had, the wolves had 300, had 24 two man lineups this, this season that played 350 or more minutes together. A the Kogi and Culver pairing was the worst of all 24 of those. They got outscored again by 8.8 .8 points per 100 possessions. That's awful. Um, the, the, and the offense was particularly terrible with those two on the floor with an offensive rating of 102.6, which, again, that's shooting. It's, it's, it's pretty much that simple, which, which leads us back to the overall arching question of, you know, if it's going to be that bad offensively, you know, can, can they play together? And, and to me... I think it requires that creativity that, that Rosa's mentioned or, or what I mentioned, you know, I, I think they can play together if a Kogi functional functionally plays the, plays the four. I mean, you, you heard Rosa say J.O. with his physicality and his strength really gives us some creativity there defensively. I, I mean, I don't know. What would that creativity be other than sliding him up to a position we wouldn't normally think of? I, I think too, if that is going to happen, then Culver, Culver's pretty critical in those theoretical Akogi at the four minutes because by sliding Akogi up a position, you'd be shifting him out of that point of attack defender role that where we've, you know, become accustomed to seeing him guarding, guarding the ball. Like he was like that. He typically would guard James Harden. He would guard the, the primary, you know, attacker of the opponent. But if Akogi's down guarding fours, then someone else has to be the, the point of attack defender. And, that's a very important role on a team that has D'Angelo Russell because Russell cannot guard the opposition's best perimeter threat. Now, Kogi would be the logical answer to if you're going to hide Russell, who are you going to plug in there? But if he's playing the floor, someone, someone else has to do it. And you don't want that to be Russell. You don't want that to be Beasley, given what we know them to be as defenders. So, the, the, you know, who on the current roster approximates a, a competent point of attack defender outside of a Kogi. And the answer is obvious. It's Culver. This means that if a Kogi is playing the floor, that Culver almost has to be on the floor with him to defend the point of attack. But yes, what about the offensive end? We know it didn't work in the aggregate. It did not work at all. Having Culver and a Kogi out there together. And that's because the same catch and shoot problems exist for Culver as they do for a Kogi. Remember that stat? about a Kogi where there's 209 catch and shoot 
three-point shooters who shot 100 three-point attempts and Okogie was last. Well, Culver was 201st. Better than Russell Westbrook, better than Trevion Graham, and only five other players in the whole NBA, 29.2%. That's not great. But I thought what was interesting in Russell's response, he said twice, was that who is playing point guard with Okogie and Culver matters. Now, that can mean a couple different things, but because remember, Culver and Okogie only played 17 minutes together in the 14 games after the deadline. And who is the point guard in those games? D'Angelo Russell. And I'm pretty sure he's going to be the point guard this year, right? So what gives? What? Who is the point guard that is going to make the difference here? I don't know what the answer to that was. So I asked, um, I asked Ryan Saunders about that specifically. Here's what Saunders had to say. Ryan, I asked uh, Gerson the other night about uh, what – what do you need to see out of Josh and Jarrett for them to be able to play on the floor together? Is that was something that kind of well, didn't happen after the trade deadline really. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he mentioned the importance of the point guard in that. And I guess that's just something I, I didn't really understand that part of it. Is that yeah. something you could elaborate on why the point guard is critical there? Yeah. I mean, a point guard is going to be able to get you um, organized when it comes to spacing. And as you have, have guys that do similar things on, on the wing, um, who like to play out of sim, similar areas on, on the court, um, you know, and, and guys who are good cutters, uh, a lot of times to have a point guard who, who's a passer, who, who, who's a guy who's, who's able to facilitate, um, that you know, raises those guys' uh, playing levels and raises what they, they're able to do. Um, but then on the other end, you know, we, we like the ability of, of Josh, obviously defensively. We feel Jarrett's continuing to grow into somebody who's going to be a very um, good defender in this league. And, you know, having those two guys in the wing, you know, you, you definitely want, want to have that luxury. But we also need to make sure that we, we improve, um, you know, in, in areas that, that maybe aren't, aren't our strongest right now. And, and this group is working on that. Is, is the shooting is the, does the point guard specifically impact the shooting of Josh and Jarrett? Is it, is it more there or is it more on the defensive side that whether it's D'Lo or whoever would, would make that difference? I mean, to answer the question, I'd say it's more on the offensive end. And, okay. and it's, you know, if you have a point guard who's able to get, get you organized, get you into, um, into actions where we can, uh, we can use their strengths and, and use, you know, guys that are, that are great cutters, guys that are slashers, guys that are able to put the ball on the floor as they continue to improve their shooting, which they've, they've shown a lot of strides, you know, within the, these individual workouts and then the group workouts. Um, you know, that's, that's where having a, a point guard like D'Angelo who understands that type of, of need for knowing, you know, when to call play for a certain guy or when to get you organized, um, you know, is very valuable to us because the, uh, I think you, you see a lot of times, you know, it's, the game has gone more away from calling, you know, the coach calling sets every single possession. It's, you know, you're, if you want to be a faster paced team, uh, you're going to let your point guard call some, some, of, the, um, some of the game. And uh, that's something that, that we plan on continuing to, to grow with. So according to Saunders, the point guard playing with Akogi and Culver will allow them to play together due to offensive impact. And that's, that's an interesting re- response. I mean, on, on paper, and probably because that paper has D'Angelo Russell's name in the point guard slot and Russell being a poor defender, et cetera, et cetera. It makes sense that the point guard will help Akogi and Culver more on the offensive end, even if it's just by default. That's just who D'Angelo Russell is. But that, but that response from Saunders goes against the whole notion of him actively staggering those, Akulver, those Akogi and Culver minutes after the deadline. Why, why did he do that? I, I don't know. That just With that not making sense, I think it's one of two things are happening here. One, Culver and Akogi just aren't going to play together this year. And from a PR perspective, understandably, Saunders just doesn't want to come out and say that. Or two, Cat's presence changes the whole equation. Saunders re- refused to play Russell, Kogi, and Culver together in the, at the same time last season, sure. But maybe he's willing to do so if Cat is in there instead of Nas Reed. I think Saunders' implication is that four-man units of D'Lo, Cat, Kogi, Culver will work. And again, they kind of have to work. They're the, those are the two max players and the two first-round picks from the past two years. It would make sense to want to find a way to get them on the floor together next season. And I do think it's fair to say that that Cat's presence does change everything. I think Rosas and Saunders are 
are completely willing to, and I think it's fair, I think they're completely willing to live with a Kogi and Culver's lack of shooting, provided it is next to that offensive windfall, whatever you want to call it, of Cat. Not only Cat, but Cat and D'Lo. I mean, num- numbers-wise, Cat's offensive presence alone made up for the lost efficiency in the shooting of Culver and Kogi last year. Get this. According to, according to Cleaning the Glass, half of the possessions, Kogi and Culver were on the floor together. Cat was also on the floor. In that half, the offense was insanely good. 119.5 points per 100 possessions. That's 98th percentile. Unreal good. Akogi and Culver's lack of shooting did not make the offense bad when they were with Cat. Not at all. It's when, it's when Akogi and Culver played without Cat that their lack of shooting wrecked the offense. Down to 100.5 points per 100 possessions. That's 98th percentile, those two with Cat, down to 4th percentile without him. That's an insane difference, but but those are the numbers, and I think you you all watched it. The eye test checks out too. Like it it, it didn't work, and and then really it did work when Cat was out there. Now let's throw D'Angelo Russell into the mix. Now he's replacing that Shabazz Napier Jeff Teague role. They they had that role last season. So, I mean, you could think what you want about Russell overall, but his offense compared to Napier or Teague is not even close. He's just better. The problem with the cat, a Kogi Culver threesome was defense. They might've been 98th percentile offensively, but they were eighth percentile defensively. Now, obviously Russell is not going to help that trio defensively at best, at best Russell is a push as a defender compared to Napier or Teague, but cat, a and Culver, in spite of all that bad defense, were still outscoring opponents because of the great offense. That great offense outweighed the poor defense. Their net rating was positive 1.5 with those three on the floor last year. The terrible shooters and Cat, positive overall, even with the defense. So if, if Russell is similar to Napier and Teague defensively, which I don't think is a big stretch to make, then the foursome of Cat, D'Lo, Culver, and Okogi should be a demonstrably, demonstrably positive group because that offense is pretty obviously going to improve. It should be elite. So I, I would say, I mean, my answer is Okogi and Culver can play together. You know, shooting be damned. We, we already know they can play when they're on the floor with Cat. And then better yet, they, they should thrive even more if Russell is on the floor as the fourth player. That I mean, and then if Akogi and Culver are out there with Cat and D'Lo, like Cat and D'Lo have their flaws too, that should help Cat and D'Lo because Akogi and Culver are probably the team's two best defensive players. The, the issue that I could see rising is that they might not be able to play together when Cat is off the floor. That's at least the conclusion Saunders made last year, right? He decided not to play them ever together, pretty much ever together on the floor at the same time when Cat was out. So if we are going to say that Kogi and Culver are these really important pieces here to the team, you know, I don't know, we don't got to say they're the third and fourth guys, but fourth, fifth, fifth, sixth, whatever you want to call it, it's important to be able to find a way to be able to play them together when Cat isn't on the floor. And if a Kogi Culver and offensive point guard, off, i.e. D'Angelo Russell, doesn't work, you got you to gotta try something else. Would the inverse of that work? What about a Kogi Culver and defensive point guard? We haven't seen that. Remember, the other Kogi Culver minutes were with Jeff Teague, largely. If, if Culver and Akogi are core pieces, you have to explore something else there. You have to you have to try a defensive point guard next to them. And, you know, no offense to Jordan McLaughlin, but that defensive point guard just isn't on the roster right now. So so I would say it's really important this offseason, or I don't really important. It's important this offseason to add a point guard that can competently defend a backup to D'Angelo Russell. And the, the dream, let's talk free agency. The, the dream is Fred Van Vliet, right? You start him next to Russell at the two, and then when Russell sits, you could play him alongside Culver and Okogi when he rests. Now you have that you have that defensive point guard out there. But, well, you stagger those two. You stagger Van Vliet and Russell. But I, I call it pipe dream. That's a pipe dream because the Wolves don't have cap space to sign Van Vliet, not to mention that Toronto might just bring Van Vliet back. That path just doesn't really exist. So got to move on to probably have to move on to another option and unfortunately I mean go ahead Google top point guards of the 2020 class it's a bad it's bad it's just there I mean 
there are a couple guys out there who can defend, fit, would fit the mold of defensive point guard. Chris Dunn, Michael Carter-Williams, they're free agent point guards. They can defend, but they can't shoot at all. So now you're adding another complete non-shooter to the Kogi and Culver mix? Like, no, that, that doesn't solve the problem we're trying to solve here. Which leads me to the, I mean, just having gone through those free agent point guards, I think the answer probably comes from the draft. And that brings me to Trey Jones. I mean, Trey is, is the best defensive point guard prospect in this class, and it's not really close. The best, he's not the best overall defensive player in the class. That's James Wiseman and Yeka Kangu, Isaac Okoro. Those players are in a different tier than Trey because they have size and athleticism to dominate many different types of opponents, and they'll be able to defend multiple positions. Now, that's, that's not Trey's game. What, what, what Trey can do is, is guard. He can guard the point of attack. Not, he's not going to be a, a multiple position defender because he's small. Trey's six foot three in shoes, six four wingspan, one eighty five. The the these players are all within an inch or five pounds of him. Trey Young, Quinn Cook, Tyus Jones, T.J. McConnell, Seth Curry, Corey Joseph, Kyrie Irving, Steph Curry. Now, that's Trey Jones's size. So we're not. I mean, play small ball as much as you want. You're not. You're not having him go out there and defending. You know, six foot eight wings. So <laughs> that he, he doesn't profile as a multi-positional defender, but we, we know that's not what it's fair to have concerns about Jones. Jones's elite defense in college transitioning to the NBA because of that size, because he, he's only going to be able to defend certain types of players. But as we apply this to the wolves, remember we're talking about the team needing a point of attack defender, or if I'm if my theory here is right, that, that, that is the need we, we know we know that Russell's going to be hitting off the ball, and that the only other point of attack defenders are Culver and Okogie. So if Okogie is going to be asked to defend bigger players, then the need for a point point of attack defender like Jones only increases. Jones and, and Jones defended the point of attack in college more than any other point guard prospect in this class. 172 possessions, and in those I mean this is, these are college numbers, but in those possessions he limited he limited those. He limited pick and rolls to 0.622 points per possession. That's that's a really strong number in terms of effectiveness, but also the volumes there, 172 possessions. Like, think about it. It's 0.622 points per possession. Let's do some basic mass, math. That's 31% on twos or 20.5% on threes. That's that that was pretty elite, at least at the college level. And I've, I've watched those possessions of Jones's on Synergy. And the eye test checks out too. Jones control can control the point of attack, he can force defenders one way or the other incredibly well for a player his, his size, and he was he's able to do it without fouling. It's really it's really clear on foul, at least if we just compare him to the other draft prospects here, that Jones was more effective than Devin Dotson, Nico Mannion, Tyrese Maxey, Anthony Edwards, Tyrell Terry, Tyrese Halbert, and Cole Anthony, Kira Lewis. Those other type of guys who might be you know, who might be point guards that go in the first round or guards that go in the first round. Many, and, and Trey got the experience at Duke on the ball. A lot of those other guys, watch the, just look at the number of possessions. They defended the point of attack. They were schemed off ball. You, you can like some of those other prospects more than Trey Jones. I would, there's things to like about them. But if we're saying that this is the need, like if those guys were being schemed off ball at the college level, what's going to happen when you put them in the NBA and that is your team's need for the backup point guard role? That that's what Trey Jones's job was at Duke, and you know he didn't exclusively guard on the ball. He was good; his numbers were good defending spot ups, isos, handoffs, all those things too, and that's encouraging because, as much as I'm labeling a Kogi now a small ball power forward or Culver a point of attack defender or whatever, like <laughs> these aren't like boxes that are just filled. You need to be able to do both. So if Jones can get by off ball, then that allows. Culver to be a point of attack defender too, or or Kogi if he's not if situationally if if the you know if the play calls for it, and I I really I guess my just conclusion there is that I could see that being a nice little three headed defensive guard wing sort of trio, and who knows how who's going to start or or whatever, but there's going to be there's Culver and Kogi are going to be playing with the backup point guard, and I just think it's important that that backup point guard is like you know has the same style of play as Trey Jones and it's 
you know, we got it. We got to get to the offense with Trey Jones because his calling card is clearly defense. But the thing I would say about his defense is he can. It's not just about being able to check his guy. He is. He was elite at the college level in transitioning his team from defense to offense. When Duke got stops, he got them out running, and I think I think we know that's what the Wolves want their identity identity to be on the second unit, a group that gets out and runs. And if that's Jones out there and he's with a Kogi and Culver and Lehman, whoever you want to say, I mean, guys who aren't good shooters, you can paper over some of that by playing fast and playing in transition. Now, with the reason he's you know not going to be a lottery pick, probably a mid-late first-round pick, is that is that there are questions in the half court, and those questions are fair, you know, to apply to the Wolves too, because there there is like if it was a problem to have Culver and Okogie out there as non-shooters or poor shooters in the half court, then you got to be cons- a little bit concerned about Trey in that situation too. He shot 26% from three as a freshman and 36% last year as a sophomore. And it's just <laughs> for it to work for Trey Jones in the NBA, it, he, he's got to, he's got to be able to knock down that shot with some competence and to, just to really oversimplify it. Like I think the line is, can he be better than Tyus as a shooter? I think that's the line. Tyus is a career in five years. 34.5% three-point shooter. Now, he, he's fine in catch and shoot, 38%, 38.5% in catch and shoot, but really bad off the dribble, 26.5. Can Trey be better than that? That's not exactly a high bar. And if the answer is yes, I feel like that's huge for Trey's stock, and specifically his fit with the Wolves. As I said, um, the, the media portion of the NBA Combine is currently going on via Zoom, which is very different than being in Chicago there interviewing the players, but... Um, I guess the good news is we got to record some of this stuff. So I had the chance to uh, to ask Trey um, just kind of about his game, but really to to help distinguish what those differences are between him and his brother. And and I, I think it's a lazy. That's what I say to Trey in the question. I think it's a lazy thing we do, but but that's the line for Trey is how and where are you going to be better than Tyus Jones and how and where are you going to be worse? So, so this is what I had to ask Trey Jones on, um, on our zoom call. Trey, I think some of us in the, on the media side, we kind of do this lazy thing where if somebody has got a brother in the league, we compare them to that player. And I get, obviously, you know, Tyus's game as well as anyone. What, what do you see the, the differences to be to kind of, I don't know, set that right. straight. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I, uh, I think, I mean, starting off with him, um, I mean, his IQ for the game, his playmaking abilities has always been extremely high. And, um, I mean, that's what made him so special as a point guard, is his ability to read defenses, his ability to make the right plays, find the right guys, get his teammates involved. And I feel like that's something that he does at a higher level than me, for sure. I mean, it's something that I've been trying to work on um, my entire life is just to get to where he's at. And, I mean, his IQ is so high. Um, the the plays he makes are, are really high IQ plays as well. This his understanding for the game is so obviously being able to have him as a brother and um, talk with him always. Um, I've always um, been getting better in those areas that that he's always been really good at. But I think something that um, I may be better at right now is just um, my defense for sure. Being able to lock in the defensive end and get after it. But I mean he's he's been working on that part of his game over the last. Um, five years of him being in the NBA and I, I definitely have seen the, the jumps that he makes or has made on the defensive end and so obviously um, I can say right now I think I'm better defensively but we'd have to see once that first game comes around. And just you talk about being in Minnesota uh, obviously when you were, you were in high school and, and Tyus and Ryan Ryan Saunders uh, right. worked together closely there I'm wondering if you had any sort of relationship with Ryan back then and and just kind of how crazy it's been to watch where all three of you have kind of come over these, you know, three years. Right, for sure. I mean, um, I think Ryan actually played against my oldest brother, J.D. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's crazy because it's, it's really full circle. I mean, he played against my oldest brother, got the coach, Tyus, and now uh, I was actually in the team interview with him the other day. And so um, he's always been someone that's um, always super talkative with me, always super nice and seems really genuine with me. So... Um, I mean, I know um, 
what they're doing over there in Minnesota right now. Um, they're heading in the right direction, I think, and the organization is getting on track to win games and try to get back in the playoffs again, and so I'm excited for them. Now, I want to say it is a bit noteworthy that Jones is interviewed with the Wolves. The context you don't get from that audio is that Jones did say that his agent is only having him interview with teams that are quote-unquote high on him. He hasn't done very many interviews, and that's different. I mean, I was also on a Zoom with Tyrell Terry, and Terry made it clear that he's interviewed with just about every team in the league. So I, I don't comparatively, I don't. There's a difference there. Now maybe it's just as simple as Jones being from Minnesota and having a prior relationship with Saunders. Whatever that that could very well be the reason for the interview. But I also think it makes sense that the Wolves would be a team high on Trey. You know, given the makeup of the roster, I, I do think Trey's skill set fits well in Minnesota as, as well as it does anywhere else. And at the end of the day, like. Deandre Russell's the only point guard on the roster. Like, McLaughlin's a free agent. If we look, and I mean, if we look at how Rosas has put this roster together and invested in the point guard position, position or, or, or not invested, I guess, he, it, since he's been, I mean, think about it. Since he's been here, he just, it's been a position Rosas has tried to go super cheap on. And that just might be a philosophical belief. Remember, go all the way back to, to last offseason. He offered Tyus a pretty low ball, three, four million ish a year deal and Tyus turned it down to go get two, three times as much as that nine mil a year in Memphis low ball, right? Rosas then brought in Shabazz Napier, who was basically on a minimum contract and he gave, he gave Napier the backup point guard role. There's there literally wasn't another point guard on the actual roster to start the season. It was just minimum point guard Shabazz Napier and the incumbent Jeff Teague. And then once Teague and Napier were traded, Rosas went super cheap with McLaughlin as the as the backup point guard. He was the only other guy, and I, it's just Trey's gonna. I feel like Trey's gonna be in that cheap range. I, we talk about this in terms of dollars and cents, and you know, if we want to, if for those who think I, I'm one of them, I guess that think you know, twenty eight million dollars a year is a lot to play to pay D'Angelo Russell. Well, then it, it makes sense to go cheap at backup point guards. So we're only spending you know, 32 million total on the position. And that that's what, if Trey is a mid first round pick to late first round pick, I feel like that lines up with what Rosas wants to pay for that position behind Russell. I, I, I just think Trey is a guy we should keep our radars on at a minimum. And, and you know, maybe it isn't at 17. Maybe it's, maybe Trey's stock falls to like, he's going to be like the 25th pick. Then the Wolves could trade up from 33 to 25. I think that'd be pretty easy to do. Just at a minimum, Trey Jones serves as the archetype for the backup point guard who could maybe help this team, but specifically help a and Culver survive in their minutes when they're playing without Carl Anthony Towns. And that is just, that's just a really critical thing for Gerson Rosas and Ryan Saunders, you know, to make, to make happen. So that's what I got for this week. I guess to <laughs> summarize this, my five conclusions um, just from sort of digging into this film or stats or whatever, is one, I, if Okoge and Culver are going to be pieces of this core, if they're not going to be traded this offseason, they're going to be here going forward, then they need to be able to play together. And I, 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 two, I think we can safely assume that those two can play together if Cat is also on the floor with them. We, it worked last year, and I don't think that's, you know, it's, it's annoying when Cat had to kick out of the post and, and hit, you know, skip the ball across the floor to Josh Okoge above the break for that three that he clanked 75% of the time. Like, yeah, that's, that's annoying. But you know, what I say, slide him into the corner. There's, there's ways to make it work. And it already was working. It can work a Kogi Culver cat. And, and, and three, it'll be easier to make work. If a Kogi slides up positionally or his role shifts in some sort of way, I think four Rosas and Saunders need to make tweaks to the roster that allow a Kogi and Culver to, to, play there when cat isn't on the floor now we only went into a couple of them whether that, that's you know the backup point what, whatever it might be if you are going to say that those guys are these fourth fifth guys fifth six guys on your team you need to find a way to make that work and they can't just be completely staggered like they were after the deadline if you if you do decide to take that path now you can't call them your fourth fifth best guy they're now your eighth ninth best guys because they're problems they have holes they have things preventing you. So I think for the final thing, my, my hypothesis for finding a way to play those two together is maybe by adding a defensive minded point guard to play with them. And you know, the identity of that second group, I think we can bet on 
being a group that's going to try and defend and get out with pace. It's going to be different than when Cat's on the floor. And I really think that could work. I think I think a Kogi and Culver would be able to fit together or at least survive in that context. We don't need to you don't need to be blowing teams out of the water. You're trying to survive the minutes that Russell's off the floor, that Cat's off the floor. And with that identity, I think they could. And Trey fits that identity. There are limited options out there in free agency. But Trey at 17 or some sort of trade down or up, whatever, to 25, you can get you could get Trey Jones there, and he could be a piece that I would feel comfortable with at a good price tag backing up DeAndre Russell and, and playing with those two players. I just think that's low-key a need for this roster. And Jordan McLaughlin serves his purposes too, and and it, that's a whole different role. You know, he can play along – we saw him play alongside Russell. I'm not saying totally move on from Jordan McLaughlin. Whatever. Just Let's just call him the third point guard. You do need a defensive point guard, and Trey Jones could be that, or it's something that I think this team needs to go out and address, address in um, you know, this offseason. That's it. That's what I got for this week. Thank you um, for listening to me ramble on another one of these solo podcasts. Um, again, I'll be back next week. And until then, I'm Dane. Peace out. How I'm feeling, man, I hope it never stops, yeah. Green and hot so you can find me in the crowd, yeah, yeah. Don't let standards ever, ever bring you down, yeah. Hope you're dancing like nobody else around, yeah. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.